comment on their this little meditation? Yes. At what um, stage or point would the practice of labeling be most to your advantage? Uh, well, depending on how you want to use labeling. Just of the breath. Yeah. Like the awareness yeah. of long and short and in and out and, you know, the pauses. Uh, this is helpful to uh, to keep your attention just on the breath, to sustain your attention on the breath um, by labeling the, the beginning and the middle and the end and the pause and so forth. This can help you to stay with the breath for a longer period of time. Uh, and it's helpful until, you know, there will come a point where <coughs> the mental activity of generating the label is actually disturbing the calmness and the clarity of your observing the breath. And at that point, you'll just naturally want to let it go. So then what happens for me is I incline my mind. Okay, so I want to drop that. It's right, too yeah. disturbing. So then I want to incline my mind. And what I have a tendency to do is go into like this a recall of mental formations or experiences or feelings that are very, very pleasant. Do you know what I mean? Um, I'm not sure if I do or not. Tell me a little more. Um, well, it may not even be a re I think it is, though. It's like inclining the mind towards a, a past... Um, past experience, like it's occurring, but it's also a remembering of um, like a light, a light, or I actually have like a, a feeling that comes into my forehead and a little, you know, like a, you know. Yeah, so, so you have a feeling and you have... It sounds like you're describing memories, pleasant that are associated with pleasantness. Well, they're not—they're abstract. It's like not a concrete thing. It's like a uh, right. Yeah. And are they distracting you away from continuing no. to be aware of the breath? Mm -hmm, no. Uh, okay. Well, if they're not distracting you, then they're—they're they're just one more of those things that's going on in your mind, and. I, is there some some way in which these things have come up? Uh, you see them. Well, I'm wondering if different? it's a stage that's like okay. What I'm wondering here is because I've been meditating longer than six months, and I am still I'm look, reading, and I'm still like fluctuating amongst all these stages. So I'm um, wondering if this is too if this is where I need to be headed, I guess. Okay, well, the most important thing is that, you know, uh, until uh, until you can keep your attention continuously on the meditation object, and, and actually, uh, I'm not just not forgetting the meditation object, but not having your attention move so that you're more aware of something else than you are of the meditation object. Mm. 
until then, it's just fine to let whatever whatever else happens to be going on in your mind, just let it happen. Let it be there. And if it happens to be if it ha happens to be pleasant, uh, which you've seen to indicate some of these things are, that's fine too. But just don't you, you don't want to become attached to their pleasantness and allow that to take you away from continuing to uh, develop the stability. So you don't switch objects in the in midstream, is that? No, don't. <laughs> no, don't. But your your mind will have the tendency to want to s switch objects. If something, for, if if some particularly pleasant or satisfying thought or memory comes up, then there is going to be the in inclination of the mind, maybe, and that's the word you use, to want to go to that. Mm -hmm. And and what you want to do is, is to to just. Let that be there, but not, but not go to it. Okay. Just, just to stay with. Yeah. Anyone else want to address this little fifteen-minute meditation and, and what their experience was in it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I just thought I might just kind of share what happened. But um, for, my, for myself, what I did is I first made the intention that I would not lose the feeling of the breath, mm -hmm. breathing in and out the entire time, which I was able to do. I don't, I don't believe that I forgot one breath, which I was very okay. happy. But at the same time that that was going on, there were a lot of other things that would come up. <laughs> I would remember and get involved. But I, but I didn't lose the breath. So, but my my initial thought was I would kind of get upset and a little bit like get after myself for these other things coming up. Um, they would kind of come and then I'd say, I would kind of let them go, but I kept the breath going. And then I, I had a thought, oh, well, it's just like somebody turned a radio on somewhere. It's not really for me. It's not mm -hmm. myself. Or um, they're like uh, maybe children that just sort of came into the room and so the way to, to treat that is to be really, really kind and just, just say, I mean, be real kind to these thoughts. Like, it, well, it's okay you came up, you know, you can kind of go away. That's right. And then I got so excited about that 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 became a big distraction. <laughs> <laughs> but I still didn't lose the breath. So I said, okay, now, that's nice. I'll remember that later or something. And mm -hmm. I just tried to kind of keep going. But there's always a little bit of a, Tug of war between the two. Yeah. Like. Right. But I was happy that I made it through, and I, I believe I didn't lose that meditation. Yeah. Well, that's that's very good. That's wonderful. I just to kind of share that sort of thought. And you're really right about the attitude towards the other thoughts. Is you know, it's it's just, uh, yeah, be kind to it. Uh, you just uh, let them come and let them be and let them go, you know, without worrying out. Yeah, they're like a radio playing in the background. Or just you don't need to be annoyed at them or upset by them or trying to worry or anything like that. It's very good. Yeah. Um, I, I think you were first. For me, it's always easier to meditate in a group. Yeah. especially here and uh, it's I know that has to do with energy but also it relates to something um, 
what you said earlier, the, the, the intention is strengthened by consistency more than by willpower. And I want to, if you could elaborate a little bit more on this, because I feel when I come with a strong determi determination to my practice, it's much better mm -hmm. than when I kind of wishy-washy sit and say, let's see what's happening. And here, when I'm here, I'm knowing my intention is mm -hmm. very strong. So is that willpower? Well, that, I wouldn't call that willpower. I'd call that, you know, strong determination, consistent yeah. determination. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it, it's not that you're trying to force yourself to do something. It's rather that you have <clears throat> found in yourself the motivation that yeah. this is what you really want to do. Yeah. And I, I think... Uh, that's the way that you want to go. That's the right way. You want to have that genuine internal wish, you know, for all of the different kinds of motivating reasons that, that you can. That it's what you really want to do. And really stay away from forcing yourself, you know, well, I've said I'm going to do this, so I'm going to do it. Or <laughs> you know, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So that that's, uh, thank you for maybe helping to clarify that distinction there. Of course, the way we use words and understand them, can, there can be subtle differences. But it's, uh, you know, what I associate with the terms like willpower uh, and the reason that I chose that word to say what, what's not to do is there's a sense of trying to force the mind to go somewhere where it's not ready to go. Whereas the other, the, the strong determination, the, the, the wholesome desire, the motivation, and that, that's what we want. And it's, it's not unusual either no? that you feel in a group that's easier? No, it's not unusual yeah. at all. And you can you know, uh, take advantage of that as much as you can. Uh, and of course, o over time, you'll see that your meditation improves on your, uh, you know, when you're meditating alone as well. But yes, the just the presence of other people. Some of us are much, much more sensitive to that than others. That you know, when you're with a group of people that share the same motivation, it greatly, uh, it greatly boosts our own. Yeah. Thank you. I found it so helpful to, as you suggested, to be grateful to the part of the mind that brings you back, rather than to be judgmental. That was such a relief. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you're, you're most welcome, and it's very important. Meditation should always be pleasant. It should always be relaxing. And when you find something about it, if you find yourself uh, e either speaking or thinking in such a way that words like hard or difficult come into it, you need to have a look at where that's coming from. You know, it should be it should be relaxing, enjoyable. Uh, it, it should. You should feel relieved, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm comparing this meditation with the first meditation. I found this one a lot harder. When you said that um, for the first meditation, well, we're not going to have an object and we're just going to see what the mind does. That just was such a huge relief. I went back to the breath because I'm used to going back to the breath. But I found that to be a much more happier, joyful, attentive than where this one, because it was like an official meditation, <laughs> it was just like, you know, I'm, it's kind of like it felt I had more effort, I had the force, it wasn't spontaneous, and 
Well, it's, it's, it's very revealing. It's revealing of the way our minds tend to work. We create expectations, and, and then we make ourselves unhappy because of our expectations. You know, and, and that's exactly what I heard you saying, is that, is, is that as soon as you have that expectation, as soon as, it, as it's official, you know, then, then it becomes work, then it becomes effort. Then there's a standard that you're supposed to measure up to. Then, then there's a possibility of failing, uh, you know, and there's all of these other things. So it's good to be uh, aware of that. And, you know, uh, we're very prone to that. Uh, I think as human beings we're prone to that, but maybe in our particular society we're even more prone to that. We're very goal-oriented. We're very driving. We're very judgmental of ourselves. <laughs> And it can it can be it can take a little while to learn to recognize that. But once you learn to recognize it, then you can start to let go of it, and it can just be. I, I'm just sitting here breathing, you know. And sometimes my mind wanders, and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> it's relax and be happy with. It. But that that's uh, that, that's where you want to go, though. When you find yourself feeling the way you were feeling. You want to look at it and say, okay, what am I, what am I doing? What is my mind doing to itself? I mean, maybe not even what am I doing, because that, that still puts you in the position of the one that's being responsible for what happened and responsible for changing it. But, you know, okay, what is my mind doing? You know, what, why, why is my mind doing things that generate this sense of, of, of dissatisfaction, whereas just an hour ago it didn't? No reason to be embarrassed. Is there any reason to be embarrassed? Do you not all know exactly what she's talking about? Yeah, right. Yeah, so that's the thing. You're not the only one at all. Especially when people aren't uh, used to using the breath as a meditation object, is that the act of observing the breath will cause the breath to change. Mm -hmm. And actually, there's nothing wrong with that, but it, it can start to snowball into a problem because you start to think, oh, uh, my breath is changing and it shouldn't. I, I'm doing this. You start to, to uh, tell yourself that that you're doing something that you shouldn't do, which isn't really true. The breath changes by itself. Now, um... It's more like the blood gases have been getting, have gotten upset, and it's, um, So you've been, like, how you've been hyperventilating or something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think you were actually hyperventilating? So, and could you sense why that was happening? I had, uh, the only thing I could see was because I was focusing on it and sort of taking over the, the control of the breath consciously rather than letting my body 
Do you think you were consciously controlling your breath? Something was changing it, right. But do you think you were? Was there intention? Was there the, the intention to change your breath? No. Do you think it might have been that because you're observing the sensations of your breath, that some other part of your mind was altering the breath to make the sensations stand out more and be more easily observable? I can see that, that that could have happened. I'm not saying that it did, but um, you know, if you if you're trying to observe the sensations very clearly, there can be an unconscious, and, and therefore you don't need to put any eye on it. There can be an unconscious tendency to exaggerate the breath in order to make it more observable, and that sometimes happens. Um, if if it happens, if you think that's what's happening, just Try to relax and let go, and as much as possible, just just to be in this passive observer state. You know, it doesn't really matter if you notice all of the sensations. All that matters is that you're looking for the sensations. Whether you find them or not is quite so important. So you don't need to, and, and this will send the message to the other, whatever other part of your mind that might have altered your breathing to exaggerate the breath that you don't need to do this. It's, it's okay. I don't. I, I don't know if we've actually described what happened with you or not, but this is something that's not at all uh, un uncommon for people when they're not used to using the breath as an object. Can you think of anything else that might account for your experience? No. Okay. What? Uh, what other comments? Yes. I just wanted to ask: Could that have been um, part of that stage of purification of the mind, where stuff just? comes up, sensations and things just come up through the body. Yes, yes, that is something. Uh, the, rather than answering you directly, let me just uh, open up a, a new sort of area here of discussion. Um, first of all, let me just do a quick little survey. How many of you experienced some period of mind wandering in a 15 minute? Okay. And how many of you experienced some forgetting of the meditation object where your mind didn't wander, you recognized it and took it back pretty, pretty quickly? And how many of you, uh, in addition to Tim, never really lost the, the meditation object at all? always aware of it to some degree. Okay. Well, now, when your mind wanders, most likely, at least if it's wandered very far, uh, <coughs> whatever your mind will happen to be upon when you recognize that it's happened, will, won't really have much to do with what originally caused you to forget the meditation object. It will gone from a number of different associations already. <coughs> so the only thing you really are likely to be able to be aware of with any clarity is the last thing that you happen to be thinking about before you realize that you weren't meditating. On the other hand, when uh, you briefly forget the meditation object because your mind has gone to a, another thought, 
uh, if you recognize it right away before it leads to something else and something else and so forth, then uh, you can be pretty clearly aware of what kind of thought or, or what whatever the event was that was able to cause you to, uh, was able to draw your attention away from the meditation object so completely. What's really interesting is when you don't lose the meditation object at all, your attention stays fixed. There may be other things that, that displace partially the meditation object. So you, didn't, you don't really lose the awareness of the breath. But there's other things that come into your attention. And those are really quite identifiable because you're paying, you know, you're, you're directly paying attention to them. So you know what those distractions are. Or at least you have the capability of identifying those distractions. And then in amongst all of these are those periods where your mind is focused on the meditation object, and because it's still, you have an awareness of, in, in the peripheral vision of the mind, so to speak, you have an awareness of what other kinds of mental activities and what other kinds of distractions are, are present. Right? So, in terms of what you might have some retention of, because there was enough conscious awareness involved that it remained in your memory during that meditation will be those the last object in the sequence of mind wandering before you realized what was happening or the objects that succeeded in taking your attention away or the objects which succeeded in taking precedence over the uh, meditation object without causing you and perhaps some of the things that were just going on in your mind anyway while you were on the meditation project, right? So can you, maybe as I'm talking here, can remember what some of the things were? And, and what were they? Were they the same kind of ordinary, everyday thoughts that your mind usually engages in? Moment of panic, yeah. Yes. Okay. That's that's not not as unusual as you, you might think. Strong emotions with absolutely no explanation for where they come coming up. Yeah. But how many of you experience just the ordinary everyday thoughts? That's the same kind of stuff that's in your mind when you're doing the dishes or driving the car or whatever, right? Um, that that. That tends to be an awful lot of what we have coming up, at least uh, at least until we start to, to develop a significant calming of the mind. It's mostly the ordinary, everyday concerns. But uh, at some point, when your mind starts to become calmer, what you'll what will happen will be a lot fewer of the everyday sort of thoughts coming into your mind, and then there will be uh, another kind of thought, or often it's memories, or sometimes it's emotions, that seem to come from some deeper level of your consciousness. They're not quite so trivial. They seem to be more important, more significant. Did, did you experience that? Yeah. 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 Yeah.
experience? Some of you experience some of that kind of thing? Let's see a few heads nodding. What, when, with the reference that um, Shelley made to purification of the mind, we go around with our minds full of our ordinary concerns all the time. And when the mind starts to calm down and stop constantly processing and reprocessing all of this ordinary stuff, which, can I ask you honestly, isn't most of it a waste of time and mental activity? It doesn't really accomplish anything at all. And, but it creates a sort of a constant agitation to the mind, sort of like uh, uh, the, the surface of, of a lake that's all covered with ripples and waves and things like that. It's just constantly busy with this stuff. But when your mind calms a little bit, then stuff starts to come up from, from deeper, deeper recesses of your mind. And uh, there's more important thoughts. Uh, instead of thinking about uh, uh, that you have to remember to pick up bread on the way home tonight, you know, it comes to the thoughts of the concerns about whether you really want to continue working for the company you're working for and the problems you have there. That'd be an idea of something. It's a little more major kind of, that's a less trivial thought. But some of them can be deeper than that. And some of them can be, some of these thoughts can have to do with insights as to why you are the way you are, or memories from, from your past. Sometimes they'll have emotional content. And the reason we call this purification of the mind is that what you, what you are, what your mind operates on the basis of is all of this cumulative experience you have. And the stuff that's not completely resolved is still continuing to be processed, not at the surface of your mind, not at the level of remembering to uh, uh, mail a check for the bills and pick up bread on the way home and things like that. But the, the deeper unresolved things are always being processed at an unconscious level. And when the mind calms down, then these come to the surface. And the, by surface, I mean they come into the arena of conscious awareness. And you begin to see them. And, uh, of course, some of them, the first, the first seven of them that I referred to, are still really in the, in the more ordinary and mundane category. Is this the right time to think about selling the house and moving somewhere else? Is this the right time to think about changing the job? Should I accept the promotion that means that I don't get to do what I like to do anymore? Uh, what should I do about my uh, child's problem in school? I mean, these are a little less trivial, but they're still very much mundane. But the deeper, when we get deeper still, we start to contact those things. They have a tremendous influence on us, even though we don't know it, uh, even though we're not aware of it. Have a tremendous influence on all of our interactions with other people, on our decision making, and our behavior, and how we react to certain of circumstances, and so forth. Have those kinds of insights into into why we are the way we are, and, and why why we're stuck where we're stuck, or you know, whatever it happens to be. Those are things that need to be resolved, too. And then most of us have a fair bit of psychological trauma, the things that from 
childhood, or maybe not necessarily from childhood, but it's the same thing that they have. There's a burden of um, of emotion and unresolved and unreconciled. Uh, could be resentment, anger, hatred. Could be guilt, remorse. It could, there's all kinds of things that could be associated with it. But you're carrying it around with you, and it's affecting how you are. It's affecting your happiness. It's affecting how you how you how you behave and how you think. Those things start to come to the surface. This is the opportunity to purify the mind by exposing them to your fully conscious awareness, seeing them for what they are, accepting them, and letting them go. And emotions. You mentioned that you had just a sudden feeling of panic. And uh, that's not unusual. More, e even more common is people when they're meditating will suddenly have a feeling of anxiety. Just, you know, like they have no idea what it's associated with, but they find themselves suddenly feeling uh, anxious and almost afraid. <coughs> this is this is coming from one of those deeper recesses in your mind, and you may not recognize what it is. You may not know what it comes from, uh, but what you you can still do the same thing with it. You can still look at it. Accept it, let it be there, and then let it go. Uh, when emotions come up, but you don't know what they're due to, if you can come to the place of being in acceptance and allowing the emotion to be there, rather than reacting against it and wanting to push it away and drive it away and avoid it, then this creates a likelihood that whatever is, that whatever is behind that emotion will come into view as well same opportunity to examine it, let go of it, free yourself from it. And uh, sometimes they may come back a, a few times, but eventually if you succeed in fully letting them go, you will have purified your mind of this old residue of something that's unresolved that's continuing to have an effect in the present. So this is a very valuable thing, very useful. So this is what you can expect in the course of your meditation, that your distractions are going to go from just being the ordinary, everyday trivia, working their way through to being those things which you can, uh, you can purify your mind of. And, and uh, this will go a long way towards making uh, make it easier for you to develop the kind of focus and concentration that you need. Yeah? In a uh, meditation group that I was in before, we referred to those flashes as meeting your dragons. Yes, meeting your dragons or meeting your demons or things like that. Right. Yeah, and uh, it's really important that when you meet your dragons that, that uh, you don't get in a fight with them. <laughs> <laughs> If you get in a fight with them, it, uh, it, it won't resolve the situation. It'll just bring a lot of that old misery into the present. <laughs> As a matter of fact, one way that uh, one person uh, told me 
that she'd been taught to deal with them, referring to them as demons, not dragons. She said, feed your demons. And that's really, that's really what you want to do. You're coming from this place of, of, of acceptance, you know. So when the demon shows up, instead of getting in a fight with it or trying to send it away, you know, offer it part of your lunch. <laughs> Make friends with it. All, all of your demons, they, they have a total right to be there. <laughs> Whatever it was that happened that caused them to come into being, <clears throat> and whatever has happened since then that has kept them in this unresolved state, uh, they have a right to be there. And uh, if you push them back down below the surface, then they'll continue to be there. If you let them come up into the light day, confront them, accept them, be willing to be with them as long as you need to be with them until they're ready to go. Then when they get ready to go, you don't hang on to them. You let them go. <laughs> you, you laugh, but you know, if you think about it, don't we sometimes have a tendency to hang on to this stuff? You know, we're so used to it. It's a part of us. And it's hard to let it go. But you have to remember to do that, too. When, when, when some of this old stuff is ready to go, just let it go. You don't need it. You don't need the problems that it's been causing all of this time. So I'm just thinking of a quote by uh, Donald uh, Neil Walsh. He said, that which persists, or that which you resist persists. That which you resist persists. And that is absolutely true. In a situation like that, what do you do with the with the sensation of the grip? In a situation like this, when you have one of these de demons coming up, you have one of these demons coming up. Well, these are the uh, these are a very good example of the kind of thing we talked about earlier. That something that really strongly engages your attention, and you can't just you can't just successfully ignore it and let it be then what you're going to have to do is to take that as your meditation object. But remember to be objective. And that that can take, uh, you might not get it right the first time, or even the first few times, if it's something that carries a lot of emotional significance. It, it may have, have a lot of power to, to uh, grab hold of you, and you can get lost in it. But really be on guard against that, and try to stay objective. Try to, to keep that distance between you and whatever it is. That, okay, this is something coming this is something coming up in my mind. It is I'm not creating it. I don't own it. It is the result of past experiences. I may be responsible for it being there, but it's the fact that it's there is not something that I have any direct responsibility for or any over it, over it. And so that helps you to create that objectivity, and then you can confront it, then you can examine it, you can see it in a clearer light, and you can let go of it. But as I say, it might take some practice with the stronger ones. But don't be discouraged, too. Sometimes, sometimes your dragon bites. Could I explore the concept of letting it go? More deeply. More deeply, okay. It sounds so easy, but 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, one of the hardest things to realize is that letting go is not a thing that you do. It's a, it's more a not doing. It's a not holding on to. And um, it's a funny kind of thing. We can be in this situation of, you know, how can I let go of this thing? And, and we're just gripping it so strongly. You know, I want to let go of it, but I don't know how. And the harder you try, the, 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 more you, the more you're involving with the, 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 the thing, you're grasping to it. And the letting go is, in a way, it's, it's subtle. It's, it's, it's a not doing. It's a ceasing to grasp any further. We have attachments, and what makes it hard to let go is, uh, you know, I, I like the word attachments in this regard. You grasp something, but if you imagine that, you know, there's, there's some Velcro on this. So even though I let go, it doesn't fall away right away. You know, the attachments keep it there. Okay. So sometimes the not doing means waiting until finally the Velcro lets go and, and it doesn't stay. Uh, sometimes you have to be more active than that. The, the attachments that you have to any one thing are not going to be limited to only that one thing. They have to do with a lot of other things. Um, and we think of grasping and attachments most simply in terms of those things that we want and desire. It's harder to recognize that we all are also grasping and attaching to things that, that make us unhappy, but we do. We grasp and attach to those things. And so, in order to recognize that attachments to exist, the things that make us unhappy, we have to take that extra step of understanding, why would I have an attachment to something that makes me unhappy? What, uh, what else is it involved with? Or what other part of my psyche feels the need to hold on to this? And... You don't do that, at least uh, in meditation, you don't do that through analysis. I mean, in, uh, with, uh, uh, if, if you go to a therapist, you might use analysis or other methods to try to find your way to do that. But the way that we do this in meditation, if it comes up in meditation, your mind's in a pretty calm state, in a pretty clear state with uh, good awareness. We do this through simply continuing to investigate it until and let it reveal itself. Let it reveal to us the 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 ways and the reasons uh, that we st that we're attached to it, and it's so hard to let it go. Now, how this manifests? Is, you're sitting there med meditating. And something comes up. For example, just because this is a really common, it's some, something that happened in the past that's had a really powerful effect on you and continues to uh, influence you to this day. And it comes up, and it comes up with its whole, with, well, it comes up with a lot of associated emotions. And uh, it's so strong that you need to examine it, so you examine it, and you start investigating it. 
And if you can do, if you can just keep watching it, and what, how does this make me feel physically? That, you know, this, this is how you stay objective. With it. Did it produce a tightness in my chest? Do I feel, do I feel I'm clenching the muscles in my forehead? Uh, how does this make me feel? What's the emotional content of this? Maybe you find that there's some remorse associated with it, but you continue to watch, and then you realize, well, no, there's anger too. You know, and and the remorse kept kept you from seeing the anger, so you accept the remorse. Okay, yeah, well, I made some mistakes. I shouldn't have done it. Then there's anger, but then you come to the point of, well, yes, you know, I, uh, I I'm angry, but the other people who are involved, uh, they're they're. There were reasons why they did what they did. I no longer need to hold on to that anger. And just through the process of looking at it, you can come to a place where gradually you can start to let go of it. It's not important anymore. It may happen that that doesn't happen right away. You look at it for a while, and then it just sort of, it starts to fade away. And you go back to your meditation until the next time it comes up. And then you repeat the process. But what you're looking for is that place where it starts to be really clear, the whole thing of, oh yeah, I see how that happened. And there's no judgment in there anymore. And there's not any more blame for yourself or for the other person or anything else. And then you can really let it go. You can let it go because you don't have the attachment to it anymore. In other words, it no longer has the same importance in terms of your identity. Your remorse and your anger are really manifestations of your ego attachment in one form or another. And when they let go, then uh, then there's not going to be much left to hold on to there. It just it'll become something that once happened. And when it's just something that once happened, then you're really free of it. And it's one of the one of the huge benefits of meditation. It's necessary. Your mind has to become purified of these things. You're not going to get to that place of effortless concentration and rapture and happiness while your mind is still roiled in its deeper uh, levels by all these unresolved past concerns. The purification of mind absolutely has to happen. It's an essential part of it. That's a wonderful thing too, though. Because as you as you begin to let these things go, they begin to no longer to affect you in uh, undesirable ways. So I'm going to use this discussion as a lead into introducing you to another extremely valuable 2,500-year-old concept. That's called the five hindrances. The five hindrances are, well, first of all, they're called hindrances in this context because they uh, are hindrances to our uh, developing these deep and profound meditative states that we would like to be able to access easily. But they're also quite obviously hindrances in every aspect of our life. And as a matter of fact, there are also hindrances to the awakening that process of meditation is hopefully leading us towards. Now, 
which order to present these in. I'll present them to you in the, in the traditional order first, but then we'll talk about them in the order in which you're going to, going to in the order in which a person who begins a practice of meditation is most likely going to uh, encounter them. The traditional order is the first hindrance is the hindrance of uh, worldly desire or desire for what is known as the sense realm. Uh, I think worldly desire conveys the idea pretty clearly. The sense realm, and we speak of it as, as, as desire, uh, sense desire, desire for the sense realm. If we just call it sense desire, you know, you might mistakenly think that it's only the desire for things that taste good and feel good, and so forth. But it's much more than that. This, the world that we live in is called the sense realm. We experience it through the five senses. And so uh, the sense realm is the world as we know it. And so worldly desire, I think, describes this best. It's all of the things uh, to do with the world as we live in it, as we experience it, that we respond to with some kind of desire. Then the second uh, is usually given as ill will. Uh, ill will, of course, means things like uh, anger and hatred. But actually, ill will, uh, when we examine a little more closely, it's all of those negative mental states of uh, not just annoyance and impatience, but judgment, dissatisfaction, and it's not just ill will towards someone else or something else, but it is the uh, uh, ill will that we can experience towards ourselves when we judge ourselves in a negative way, when we find ourselves lacking. So, although ill will is a convenient label, it's really addressing all kinds of negative mental states that which causes you pain, you are averse to, and you can come to hate. And so the ill, the Ill will as a description of this is, is, is quite clear. But I'll point out to you that that which causes you pain, you, not also come, you don't also come to hate it, you also come to fear it. So fear is also a manifestation of this same negative mental attitude. So that's the second. We have worldly desire and we have ill will. <coughs> the third hindrance usually described as sloth and torpor. And I really don't like those. Those are very Victorian <laughs> translations of the, of the Pali and Sanskrit words. Sloth and torpor. <laughs> sloth is, is one of the uh, uh, one of the uh, sins, right? Deadly sin, deadly sin, sloth. Although uh, we still continue to use those terms, I think far more appropriate and capturing the intent much more clearly is, uh, rather than sloth, is resistance and procrastination. Uh, resistance is really getting to the essence of it. When your mind resists something, don't want to do this. We'd rather do something else. 
procrastination. Well, I'll do that, but not until after I've done this first. And torpor. Now, torpor actually, uh, not quite such a bad word, but um, because it's, it's talking about the lack of energy or will or, or determination for something. And it also talks about when there's a lack of energy, the tendency to, to slip into dullness or, or sleep or lethargy. So maybe lethargy would actually be a, a better word for it because it accounts for both the physical and the mental lethargy that we sometimes account, that, that, that we sometimes encounter. So uh, let's, let's call this third uh, hindrance uh, resistance and lethargy. If you can keep in mind what I, the way I'm using these words. Then the fourth thing that we can uh, encounter as a hindrance is the mind that is agitated due to worry and remorse. You know what that's like, right? You're worried about what's going to happen, or you're experiencing remorse and regret about something that has happened or you've done, and it agitates the mind. Agitation due to worry and remorse is the fourth. The fifth one is skeptical doubt. The fifth hindrance is where we begin to doubt ourselves, doubt what we're doing. Uh, in the case of meditation, doubting the meditation technique. You, know, you may doubt your ability to do it. Well, I'm not like other people. I just don't have what it takes. Uh, that kind of doubt, doubt the method. Well, maybe this, maybe this isn't the right way for me practicing. Maybe this is the wrong kind of meditation. I should be doing something else. Or doubting the teacher. Maybe maybe this is not a good teacher. Find a better teacher, then it would be a, a lot easier. If that's why I'm not uh, having the success that I think I should be having. Or when it gets to its deepest forms, you know, maybe this is all just a total waste of time. And I really would be better off, you know, going out for a beer with my friends or watching TV or something join the Pentecostal church or, you know, this is, this is all a bunch of uh, misguided mumbo-jumbo and I best just forget the whole thing and leave it behind. That's skeptical doubt. So these are the five hindrances. Now, in, turn, in the order that you most likely will encounter them uh, or the person when they take up med meditation encounters them, Usually the first one that they're going to uh, meet up with is the resistance and lethargy, particularly the resistance and procrastination. You know, and that's why the first of these 10 steps uh, is establishing a practice. And that's not an easy thing to do. You, you can get all enthusiastic, you know, well, I, this is great, I'm gonna meditate, every day for so long, such and such a period of time. And so for two or three days you do it, and then something comes up and you don't. Then, then nothing comes up and it's time to do it, but you don't really feel like it. <laughs> and then even uh, if you have a, uh, when you become successful at uh, sitting down to meditate, on a regular basis, you sit down and you still have that resistance. But 
well, you know, I, uh, maybe I'll just daydream or I'll plan my project or I'll uh, solve, solve some problems that I have or something like that because watching my breath is not going to be any fun. Resistance is still there. And then lethargy, which can be physical. You can be tired and go to sleep, or you could just feel like you're too tired to meditate. So this is usually the first one that we encounter. We have enthusiasm to start with, and that, that just doesn't last very long, and then we encounter this resistance. Then the next thing that we might encounter is uh, doubt. Uh, maybe this, maybe I can't do this, maybe this isn't for me, that sort of thing. And then the next one that we come across is worldly desire. Well, actually, it's probably been operating in uh, concert with some of these others. You know, don't you have more important things to do with your time and your energy? Uh, that's, that's part of the procrastination and resistance thing. Uh, they work together that, uh, you know, well, I have this other more important thing. It's not that I'm not going to meditate today, but this is really important. You know, uh, my happiness depends on it, so I'm going to do this thing first. And then you might not ever get around to meditate. But worldly desire is also the source of all those thoughts and distractions that you have coming up. Uh, in the, the uh, certainly in the earliest part of your meditation until you start to calm the mind and get deeper things coming to the surface, uh, a lot of what's in your mind is going to be ordinary, everyday thoughts. And if you examine those thoughts, every one of them can, can be quite appropriately described as being some instance of worldly desire. The things that you want to do that are going to make you happy, or the things that you have to do that are going to keep something else from making you unhappy. Isn't that the con content of your mind on a daily basis? It's, it's all of these things that you're either going, they're either going to make you happy or they're going to keep you from becoming unhappy. It could be desire, desire for pleasure, yeah, the things that taste good and feel good. But it's all kinds of other desires. Being, being liked, being respected, being admired, having money, making money, getting promoted. Holding on to the things that you were not holding them lost. Um, just goes on and on. All the things of the world. And those will come up. And they're hindrances. They keep taking you away from the meditation object. And another thing that will take you away from the meditation object are thoughts of ill will. All of your unhappiness and annoyance. And your anger and your hatred. Whether it's directed at somebody else or directed at yourself. Or directed at the government or your boss or your job or medical system or whatever it happens to be. It takes your mind away, doesn't it? Yeah. So, that, that, that's, uh, so usually worldly desire and uh, ill will are, are the source of many of the thoughts that create our distractions. And that can also have the effect of, of uh, sapping our determination somewhat and weakening our
And then there's the agitated mind due to worry and remorse. And I put this last, not because it isn't always present, because usually the others are predominant, and, and it's a while before you get to the point in your meditation where you realize that your mind is agitated, even when you're not, even when you're not being plagued by thoughts of worldly desire or ill will, your mind is still agitated. And sometimes it's just at that point where the ordinary mundane thoughts are no longer predominating that what comes to the surface is the things that you're worried about. And they come into, you, into your mind. Or the things that you have regret and remorse about. And so, and it, it's not, and you notice the interesting thing about the way that this hindrance has been described is it's the agitation of the mind do these. Because the mind will be agitated by these things, whether you're consciously aware of them or not. You may not be actually worrying about your worries, but remember I said that your your the thinking part of your mind keeps processing anything that's unresolved? The worries that you have are unresolved issues, and your mind never really lets go of them, even though you're not consciously aware of them, even though you're doing something else, thinking about something else, having a good time. The worries are still present beneath the surface. And the same thing with the remorse. Uh, when you're not doing something else, and you sit down and meditate, and your mind gets quiet, then you become really aware of these things. Okay. So, you can see where what we talked about earlier fits into this. It's the, when you get past the more superficial things, the deeper, the, the, the deeper forms of the same hindrances come up. Um, the deeper doubts, the deeper sources of resistance, the deeper uh, worldly desires, the deeper sources of ill will, and the deeper uh, sources of agitation begin to come to the surface. And so, all the way through the process of becoming, uh, of, of mastering meditation, you keep encountering in one form or another these hindrances rising again until eventually you overcome them entirely. Yes? I have a question to the relationship of uh, skeptical doubt and resistance. Like you said, for example, under skeptical doubt could be, this is not the right teacher, so I'm not going there. Where comes discernment in and where that relates to resistance as a right thing, a protection actually. You are not ready for this, you want something else. So it's a positive resistance at that, at that Well, the difference that I think is important here is between what is rational, logical, and reasonable, and what is primarily uh, emotional, or coming from a level that you can't, uh, that you can't necessarily identify the, the causes of. Now what, what we tend to do when we have, when we experience resistance is we come up with explanations for it, rationalizations for it. And so to make the kind of distinction that you're talking about, 
we need to learn to recognize when we're rationalizing or when the mind is actually being rational. So if we take, for example, you know, uh, the question of, of the practice that you're doing, okay? Uh, an irrational resistance or an irrational doubt is an emotional state that stands in the way of you doing the practice or stands in the way of putting your full uh, your full intention into doing the practice. And in that case, it's a hindrance. But if you've overcome the hindrance and you've put the time in and you've put the efforts in and you've followed the, the uh, instructions very carefully and it's not, it's, it's just plain simply not working at all not just not going as quickly as you think it should, but it just doesn't really seem to be working. And that's a different kind of, that's a different kind of doubt there. And that's one worth paying attention to. Is, is, is this addressing the distinction that you're asking about? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking also about discernment, you know, that you make a choice where, yeah. where this leads you and where you want to be led. And that is that when you have resistance to one thing that is a positive thing, then it's almost like cutting you off that sidetrack instead of, of moving on to what's right for you. Uh, yeah. Could you could you give me an example? Well, I think the teacher example is a great one in terms of I have met so many teachers and I had a lot of resistance to some and to others none, and I trusted that in, intuitive feeling. Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't get what they wanted to teach me. And was it just me, or was it? Well, uh, it led me to something else, where all of a sudden everything opened. So what is that? Was I not ready, or was it really not the right teacher at the right moment for me? Um, well, if you weren't ready, it wasn't the right teacher at the right moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then the resistance is right. It 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 took me. It took the desire and the determination to find the next step. You know, yeah. and that uh, that never wavered. It was just another um, stop on the path. Then, well, the thing that I think that is really important about practicing in the way that I'm talking about is is this that right from the very beginning we're we're learning to have introspective awareness. We're learning to examine what's taking place in the mind and practice mindfulness of it. Because the only way you can have the kind of discernment that that you're talking about and that you need is, is to be aware of what's going on in your mind. And how else can you discriminate between uh, a resistance that's coming from you know, a kind of laziness and a resistance that's coming from a uh, deeper intuition that this really isn't uh, what you should be doing. Uh, because otherwise, if, if you don't have that kind of introspective mindful awareness, there really is no way to tell the difference. And the mistake that, the mistake that people always make, all people make, uh, at some time or another, and sometimes far too often, is to uh, is either to mistake a feeling for some profound direction, and in which case they make a mistake or they lose an opportunity, 
or else to ignore a genuine intuition and, and waste their time. So there's no way to tell them apart. And I mean, the same person can can do both of those things uh, on successive days in, in, uh, in, in different circumstances. The only way to tell the difference between them is actually to develop some ability to objectively examine what's taking place in, in your mind. That's how you can tell the true intuition from an irrational emotion that's uh, uh, maybe quite counterproductive.